We turn in Holy Scripture to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy 2, and we will read the whole chapter. Here Paul is giving instruction to the young pastor Timothy on how to lead the church in the right way. The text is verses 1 through 4. I'll reread those at the end. 1 Timothy chapter 2, this is the word of God. I exhort, therefore, that, first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Whereunto I am ordained a preacher and an apostle. I speak the truth in Christ and lie not. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity. I will, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works." Let the women, let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman, being deceived, was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing, if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. And so far do we read God's holy word. Text is verses 1 through 4. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. In 1 Timothy, Paul teaches Timothy how to lead a church properly. According to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, Paul, sometime after the third missionary journey, had left Timothy in Ephesus to work in the church there. That church had recently been established. It was established on the third missionary journey. And now Timothy is to lead that church there. And 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15 gives to us the purpose of this letter that Paul writes to this young pastor, Timothy. 1 Timothy 3, verse 15 says, If I tarry long, 
that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So Paul's instructing Timothy how to lead the church. And he begins in chapter 1 by telling Timothy that he is to defend or guard himself and the people against false doctrine. And he's to preach the gospel properly. That's chapter 1. And then chapter 2, which we read, that now begins, I exhort therefore. And literally that's, I exhort then And the idea is, Timothy, I'm now going to tell you something that will help you in the spread of the gospel. Something that will help you in leading the church properly. And that's really what chapter 2 is all about. And Paul begins this chapter in which he's going to instruct Timothy on leading the church. He starts it with prayer. Prayer. Prayer in the church specifically. Remember, he's teaching Timothy how to conduct himself in the house of God. So the prayers that he's talking about in verse 1 are, are not, it's not, first of all, instruction about how you pray in your home or instruction about how you pray by yourself. But first of all, Paul is showing Timothy how to pray in the church, in the public worship services. This instruction that we hear today about what prayers to make from these verses, it would be good to apply it to your personal prayers and to your family prayers, but the emphasis is on prayer in the house of God, in the worship service. Paul exhorts Timothy to pray for all men in verse 1, and then proceeds to single out a particular group, And that group is kings and government rulers. This is a group of men that is easy to overlook in prayers, but Paul doesn't want that to be the case. So he tells them to pray for kings and government rulers, for they have such a huge effect on the church and on the spread of the gospel. Now, Paul's emphasis on public prayers for government leaders is important for us to consider this morning. It's important, first of all, because it reminds us that we are to have public prayers in the worship service. In the broader church world today, there's a clamoring for more excitement in the worship service and to do new things and push the old things aside or have very little of it. In 1 Timothy 2, God reminds us, you must pray together in the worship service. You must. And the text reminds us, too, to pray for government leaders. Now, I'm sure that that happens here. I am very sure that Reverend Brummel, when he prays and leads us in congregational prayer regularly, that he prays even the words sometimes of 1 Timothy chapter 2, asking that the government may rule well, that we lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. This text is encouragement to do that and to encourage him to continue to do that. This text will 
Show us what those words exactly mean so we can pray that with understanding. It would be encouraged and strengthened to pray for government leaders publicly in the worship service through the text, the preaching of the word today. Let's consider the text under the theme, praying for civil rulers. Praying for civil rulers. First, praying for whom? Second, praying for what? And last, praying for what end? Praying for whom? Praying for what? Praying for what end? First, praying for whom? In verse 1, Paul exhorts Timothy and us to pray. We begin there. He exhorts Timothy and us to pray. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Those many words for prayer in the text indicate that prayer is an act of worship in which we draw near to God to ask him for our needs and to give thanks. Prayer is first of all an act of worship. In prayer we are speaking to God. The very word prayers in the text, verse 1, it It means literally to speak words to God. Now, we of course can only do that through Jesus Christ, the one who took away all the sins of us believers at the cross. Only through Christ can we enter into the throne room and speak with God. And this speaking with God is worship. The very words prayers In the text, it's used in other passages and often in connection with worship. Jesus, in Matthew 21, verse 13, says, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. So Jesus called the temple where God's people gathered to worship, he called it the house of prayer, connecting worship with prayer. In prayer, one certainly worships God. By praying, one is acknowledging, God, I need thee. I cannot provide these things for myself. I need thee. That's worship. So prayer is first of all an act of worship. In which we draw near to God. An act of worship in which we draw near to God. The word intercessions in verse 1 brings that idea out. The word intercessions is a word for prayer that means to draw near to God in intimate fellowship. When we talk to certain friends, we have certain close friends in this life, and we, we pour out our hearts to them, we speak to them about our difficulties, our fears, our needs. We maybe say things to those close friends that we would never say to anyone else. That's the idea of intercessions in the text, that we, we draw near to God and pour out our hearts to him. We speak of our needs, we talk about our difficulties, our fears, and things that we maybe would not say to anyone else. Intimate covenant fellowship. And that that too is worship. God is pleased when we 
have that fellowship with him, come to him and speak to him closely, draw near to him. So prayer is an act of worship in which we draw near to God and ask him, and ask him to supply needs. The word supplications in verse 1 is a word that refers to an urgent and specific request. That word supplications in verse 1 is also used in Luke 1 verse 13. Luke 1 verse 13 says, But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer, and literally it's this word supplication, thy supplication is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. So Zacharias and Elizabeth had made supplication. They had made a specific request. And that specific request was that the Messiah come. And, and we make specific and urgent requests as needs arise in our lives too. Someone in church is going to have a surgery. We make supplication for them. And supplications too are part of worship. For we are showing dependence on God. That praises him. So, prayer is an act of worship in which we draw near to God. And ask him to supply our needs. And give thanks. And give thanks. Verse 1 uses that term giving of thanks in connection with prayer. And the Apostle Paul uses that word in distinction from supplications. Showing that we are not just to make urgent requests in prayer. But also to thank God for what he has given that's part of prayer too. And that, of course, that thanking of God is, is worship of him as well. Now in the text, Paul says, I exhort thee, I exhort therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Paul exhorts Timothy to pray, and that means he's calling him to pray. And he says, I exhort thee, I, meaning I, the Apostle Paul, exhort thee, Timothy, to pray. These words have authority. This is Christ speaking, for he has made me an apostle. Christ calls you, Timothy, to pray. And it's an urgent calling. The word exhort in the text has the idea of urge or beseech. And four words are used for prayer in the text. Paul's piling on terms for prayer here to show Timothy, you must do this in the worship service. And he even says, I exhort thee, I exhort therefore that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made. First of all, do this. Whatever you do in the worship service, Timothy, make sure that prayers are made. Why is that so important? Why does Paul open chapter 2 with this and say, first of all, make these prayers? Why, is the, why are they such a big deal? First, it's because prayer is the chief part of thankfulness. 
congregations that meet to worship the Lord. They are those that have been given the gift of salvation. Through Jesus Christ, salvation from sin and eternal death and hell and unto everlasting life with the Lord. The congregations are to give thanks for that. And the chief part of thankfulness, the chief way to show that thanks is prayer. So Paul says, first of all, pray. This is so important. Prayer is the chief part of thankfulness. And the triune God, a God of unity, he's especially pleased when his people come together to give thanks to him in prayer. God also urgently exhorts us to pray because we need prayer. We need it. We are a people that need God. We are, in a sense, in a precarious position as those who live in the world where the devil attacks every day, attacks each of us and our children. We can't stand a moment of ourselves. And scripture teaches that God is pleased to give us as a congregation what we need as we pray to him for those needs, as we depend on him. So pray together in the worship service. We need prayer. And last, regarding why God so urgently exhorts us to pray. It's that prayer is a a necessary part of covenant life with God. God has made us his friends. And as you know in your daily life, friendship demands communication. So God tells us as a congregation to pray together to him. We must have congregational prayers. And not just that, but the text shows us that we must take them seriously. It can be a temptation not to take them seriously. It can be a temptation for the minister just to quick, quickly make a congregational prayer and not put, put much thought into it all or put none in and just come up and go on a whim. Maybe even pray wrongly in that way because he's not prepared. It can be a temptation for the people in the pew not to make that congregational prayer their own so that they're sleeping or daydreaming, thinking about the game last night or school tomorrow or work tomorrow. We know how that can go. God is not pleased. When we view congregational prayer that way, he shows right here, this is important. I exhort first of all that prayer supplications be made in the house of God. So prepare for worship so that you're ready to pray together and do it from the heart. Prepare for worship. Take time, Saturday night, Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon, to think about how good our God is to us. That helps us get ready for coming to him in prayer. Take time to have devotions with your family in the morning before church on Sunday. Sunday afternoon so that you're ready to go to God in prayer with his people. Thinking upon him. Go to bed on time on Saturday night. 
That's important. It's, it can be hard to concentrate for 10 minutes during a congregational prayer. Be prepared with your rest so that you're ready to listen, ready to make that prayer your own. Paul exhorts us to pray in the worship service, and he exhorts Timothy and us to pray for all men. Pray for all men, including kings. But we begin, we begin with all men. Verse 1 says, I exhort therefore that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. That does not mean that we are to pray for every individual in the world head for head. The words all men in scripture very rarely refer, if ever, to all men head for head. For instance, Luke 3 verse 15 says this. It says, and as the people were in expectation... And all men mused in their hearts of John, whether he were the Christ or not. That cannot mean that every person in the world was musing or meditating about whether John the Baptist was the Christ or not. Not every person in the world head for head was doing that. In John 12, verse 32, Jesus says, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. If all men there means every single individual in the world, then Jesus is a failure as a Savior, for he has not drawn all men head for head to himself. So also the word here, the words here, all men, do not mean every man head for head, but the idea is this. That we are to pray for all kinds of men. All classes of men. Men and women and people from all nations. The idea is, Timothy, don't leave a certain type of people out of your public prayers. Don't eliminate any type of person that's around you. So Paul exhorts Timothy to pray for all men and in particularly, in particular for kings. Verse 2, right after he says prayers be made for all men, verse 2 says for kings and for all that are in authority. That word kings there, it must refer to the emperors of that day. And when Paul was writing to Timothy, the emperor of the world then was Nero. But it wasn't just Nero who was a a government leader then. The Roman Empire was divided into provinces. And in each of those provinces there was a governor. And there was a governor even over the province where Ephesus was. And that's where Timothy was ministering, remember. There was a governor in Ephesus. Acts chapter 19 verse 38 speaks of that governor over Ephesus. And under governors there were deputies that had authority. Maybe you remember that in Acts 19, verse 35, we read about the town clerk of Ephesus, who must have had some authority, for he told the people to stop shouting and making a a riot over how 
Diana was great. Great as Diana of the Ephesians, those men were yelling, and the town clerk quieted them. So there were kings and there were those in authority, that is, those that had the right to rule in that day. And Paul says, pray for them. Pray for these civil rulers. Now one might think, did they really have to and was it really possible for them to pray for civil rulers then and and do we really have to do that today? We could understand a prayer maybe for a ruler like the Pharaoh of Joseph's day who was kind to Joseph, kind to the Israelites. But what about the Pharaohs that came after him? What about Nero who persecuted, tortured, and killed Christians? What about the rulers today? What about President Biden and and other governors and and congressmen who who not only allow uh, homosexuality and abortion, but even today gone so far as to promote those things even? What about women who probably should not have those positions of authority that they do? And what if rulers begin to persecute? Scripture says we must pray for these rulers. We must pray for them and must even love them. Lord's Day 39, when talking about the fifth commandment, says we must show all honor, love, and fidelity to all those in authority over us. That's God's calling. We must do it. But why does he single out government leaders? Why does he single out kings here in verse 2? Why does he single out them for prayer? Well, their office and the execution of the duties of their office has such a profound effect on the church. That's why. They have the power, they have power over the lives of the citizens, power over them, the members of the church, and those to whom the gospel will be spread. Think of the difference that a God-fearing ruler would have on the church as compared to an unbelieving, wicked ruler that persecutes. What a, a difference there is between those two. So their office puts them in a position to have a massive effect on the church. But also these government rulers have a, a great responsibility and a huge calling every day. Romans 13 verse 6 says that these rulers are God's ministers. They've been appointed as his servants. And their calling according to Romans chapter 13 is to reward the well-doer and to punish the evildoer. Now, most, many governments today of the world do more than what's called of them and they start many social programs. And sometimes governments of the world today are not even... They're not rewarding the the well-doer and punishing the evildoer, but they're doing the opposite. No matter what the ruler is like, though, we must pray for them. And we must honor them. 
We must pray for them as those who have a huge effect on the church and have a very high calling, a a very great responsibility, truly to reward the well-doers and punish the evildoers. What a calling a government leader in this nation has. So many people there to rule well. Pray for them. Now what exactly must we pray? Pray for what? What must we pray regarding these civil rulers? Well, the text shows that we are to pray for their needs. Their needs. Consider the phrase, four kings, at the beginning of verse 2. In Greek, that word for means for the benefit of or for the advantage of. The idea being pray that God would give them their needs. And verse 1 even makes that more explicit. It says that we are to make supplications for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority. So pray urgently, urgent specific requests that the needs of rulers, the government rulers, be met. What are these needs, though? What are their specific needs? The greatest need that our government rulers have is salvation. That was the greatest need of the rulers of Paul's day and the greatest need for rulers today that are walking in a wrong way of unbelief and sin. They need to be brought to repentance, to faith, to live a daily life of conversion. They need that more than anything else. So we are to pray that God would give them salvation if it is his will. In Romans chapter 10, Paul made a prayer for Israel. That the Israelites might be saved if it is the Lord's will. That's what we must pray for civil rulers. Paul and Timothy might have thought it was unlikely that a man like Nero would be brought to salvation. And you might be thinking this morning the exact same thing. That's very unlikely that the government leaders that I know, that they be brought to salvation, to a true life of repentance. You might be thinking that. Yet we must pray for their salvation. And remember that God has turned our hearts to himself. People that by nature are no better than those rulers. He's turned to us. He's the God who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. Now this doesn't mean, this prayer for the salvation of rulers, it doesn't mean that we must pray for the salvation of all the rulers of the world, every last one of them. We do not pray, for instance, that God save all the people in our town head for head. But instead, what happens, and this is good, is when we talk to a neighbor who we maybe know is walking in a wrong way, when we talk to them, we pray that, that God would use our conversation with them to help them, to serve their spiritual good. We go home and make that prayer. We had some contact with them. We go home and pray for them. Well, same is true for the rulers. We read regularly in the paper or online or see certain rulers regularly on TV. When we see that, 
And we go home and we pray for them. We pray for their salvation. For our president or for our local representative or for our state senator. We pray for them. Pray that God would work in their hearts to look to Jesus Christ and to serve him alone. And we pray that we, God would even be used, God would even be pleased to use us in bringing the gospel to them somehow. So pray that God would supply their greatest need, salvation, and ask that God would give them what they need to do their daily tasks. Ask that they might have wisdom to lead the people in our nation, in our state, in a right way. And God does give that strength even to unbelieving rulers to lead the people with, in the right direction. He does do such things to an unbeliever. To, gives them strength to rule in a right way. Wicked King Saul was given the Spirit of God, for instance, for a time so that he ruled Israel in a, in a proper way. Now Saul was not, the Spirit did not do a sanctifying work in Saul. We know that. But we read in Scripture that the Spirit did guide him in his decisions. Pray for that in the same way for ungodly rulers. The Spirit would guide them in making their decisions. They may rule in harmony with God's word and with God's law, truly rewarding the good, punishing the evil, punishing those who are, are stealing, cheating, lying, murdering, all those things. Pray that they might exercise their office well in harmony with the word. Now there may be other specific requests that come up too for the rulers of the land. Maybe, for instance, uh, a, a law is being considered that will affect the churches or affect the schools. When you hear about that, and do pay attention to that as much as you can, when you hear about that, pray. Pray that those rulers would be guided in a right way and make a decision that serves to the good of the church. We did that during COVID, no doubt. Prayed often for our rulers to be guided properly. Let's continue to do that as God's word calls us to do. So I ask that God supply the needs of rulers. But also this, in, in praying for our government rulers and, and what to pray for, give thanks for them. Give thanks. Verse 1 says, giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority. It can be hard to give thanks for rulers that we do not agree with. But remember that even poor rulers are better than having no rulers at all or having rulers with absolutely no authority. A country where there is no government or where the government really doesn't have any authority that makes things very difficult for the church. There's chaos, there's anarchy, and that's happened in certain countries even in the last 25 years. In, in, a, in Albania and in Somalia, two different countries in the last 25 years, there was a period of time where the government had no authority and one country where there just wasn't any government and, and criminals 
Heavily armed criminals roamed the streets and and the violence was catastrophic. Thousands died in both cases. And in history, when there is anarchy, often the church loses so many people, as in to death. So many are killed, so many are persecuted during that time. (coughs) So give thanks to God for rulers that keep us from anarchy. And remember that God has used our rulers, often for good. God has, for instance, used our rulers to give to us the freedom of worship here in this country so that we can even gather here this morning. They are upholding that to this point. We're thankful for that. Be thankful. Express your thanks in prayer for that. And if a ruler is evil, and we know that there have been rulers, and there likely will be rulers in the future that are especially evil, recognize still that that ruler is from God. But we can pray for that ruler's removal and a new ruler that will allow us to worship and, and praise our God together. We are to pray for civil rulers with, with a goal. And that goal, according to verse 2, is this. That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Pray that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. A quiet and peaceable life is a life of tranquility and calm. It's the opposite of a life of turmoil and upheaval. A life of turmoil and upheaval occurs when there are wars or when criminals are going around unchecked in a country. In places where there's turmoil and upheaval, the church does not have a normal life. It's difficult to worship, difficult to gather for prayer, difficult to spread the gospel. To understand that, think about Gaza and Israel right now and what's happening there. War-torn countries. Gaza is war-torn because they have an Islamic terrorist regime in charge called Hamas. So life there is being turned upside down. You can well imagine that a church there could not lead a normal life worshiping, praying together. They could not, do not have a normal life. A quiet and peaceable life is a a normal life, a life much like we have here now in the United States. Now when Paul speaks of the church leading a quiet and peaceable life, he is not concerned that we have a nice regular life in which we are able to go out to eat and socialize with others. But he wants this quiet and peaceable life for the church because it helps us live in all godliness and honesty. The phrase at the end of verse 2. Godliness refers to a life in which one is thinking upon God. And that leads to worship. Daily worship. Prayer. Singing. A life of honesty is a life of respectful and proper conduct towards your neighbor. So a life of godliness and honesty is 
A life in which one is worshiping God, praying and living in love and properly towards the neighbor. When the church doesn't have a quiet and peaceable life, it is very difficult for the church to live in all godliness and honesty. In a war-torn land or in a land where crime is going on unchecked, it's difficult for the people of the church to spend time worshiping and in prayer and difficult for them to meet and do those things. In a place where there's anarchy, it's hard to spread the gospel, sharing the good news with your neighbor and and living as a godly example to them. You might hardly see them. Many people would be in hiding. So in times of of turmoil and upheaval, there's also this. The people of the church are tempted to live in immorality. The temptation is great. Think of Saul and war, it's not Saul, but Samson and war-torn Judah in the Old Testament. Some of you maybe have even served in wars and you've been in a war-torn land and you see how hard it is for those people to live a life in all godliness and honesty in a situation like that. Many are, have a great temptation to steal, do many other things just to survive. And so Paul says, pray for kings, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. A repentant king or ruler or governor, president, could have such a wonderful effect upon the church, on the life of the church. He would punish the criminal, maintain order in the land. He would make decisions with the church's best interest in mind. He, a a very visible person, would be an example of godliness to the nation that many could learn from. But even a ruler that's simply wise and provides order in society, allows us to meet for worship and spread the gospel, that kind of ruler too has such a profound effect upon the church. So pray that rulers would rule well and exercise to carry out their duties properly. We must pray for rulers desiring this end. This end, and that is the salvation of all men. Verses 3 and 4 say about our prayer for all men. It says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. God will have all men to be saved. That does not mean that God wills to save every man head for head. God's will is what he has determined to do. God's will, then, is what he desires to do and what he accomplishes. God does not will to save all men head for head according to the rest of Scripture. Romans 9, verse 22, for instance, tells us that some men are vessels of wrath fitted 
to destruction. That's a sobering thought. It reminds us of the truth, though, that God does not will to save all men head for head. When this verse says that God wills all men to be saved, it means that God wills to have men of all classes, kings and peasants, and men of all nations, saved. Christ died for a church like that. And it's God's will that people of all classes be saved because that especially shows forth his glory. It shows forth his power. It's part of the point of the text. God is able to bring so many different types of people to salvation, even kings. Men who especially would think they're high and mighty, God's able to bring even them to bow before him. And he has done that in the past. God wills to save all kinds of men. All classes. So we must pray for civil rulers seeking the salvation of all kinds of men. The prayer for civil rulers is so deeply connected to the salvation of all kinds of men. Think about it. We cannot hold public worship services in which the gospel is preached, the gospel preaching that serves to the gathering of all kinds of men into the church. We cannot hold public worship services if the police are constantly coming and locking up the doors on us. We cannot have a seminary and catechism and Christian schools and young peoples and all these things where we learn how to witness of Jesus Christ. We can't have any of that if there's anarchy and, and armed, heavily armed criminals are roaming the streets. We'll be shot down and destroyed. So pray for civil rulers seeking the salvation of all kinds of men. Pray, O oh God, make our civil rulers rule well so that the gospel might be spread to all classes, all types of people, unto the gathering of the church. As verse 3 says, that kind of prayer is acceptable to God. Verse 3 says, for this, this kind of prayer is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. That means this kind of prayer is pleasing to him. This kind of prayer glorifies him. And that makes sense. We pray for civil rulers seeking the salvation of all kinds of men. We're praying in line with God's will. That pleases him. We're saying, God, thy way is best. When we make that kind of prayer, we're seeking God's glory. And that his power be shown in bringing all kinds of men to salvation. That kind of prayer praises him. This kind of prayer shows thanks to God for being our Savior, those words in verse 3, our Savior from sin and death and hell through Jesus Christ. This prayer that is pleasing to God is instilled in us by God. Remember that. He works in us a desire to see the church gathered from all types of men. 
He moves us to pray for civil rulers, seeking that spread of the gospel to all kinds of men. He moves us to make this prayer, and he is the one who answers. He provides ministers, teachers. He works in each of us to want to be witnesses of him through proper instruction in our home and at school and at church. He gives government rulers that keep order and give an aid then in the spread of the gospel. All kinds of men are gathered into the church in this way. God is pleased to gather all kinds of men into the church as we pray, as we make this prayer in the text. He's pleased to do it as we depend on him to do it. So pray for civil rulers, seeking the glory of God our Savior. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father which art in heaven, we come to thee thanking thee for thy word. Lord, apply it to us. May we be those who pray for civil rulers in the worship service and also even in our regular prayers too, on our own and our families. Lord, use the rulers for good. Bring them to repentance if it is thy will, the ones that are walking in sin. And Lord, Use those rulers to allow us to have a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty so that we might be those who are spreading the gospel and witnessing of thee in this world, serving to the gathering of thy church from all kinds of men. We pray for much. We ask that thou wilt provide for us for Christ's sake. Amen.